witches knocking on my front door. God knows I'm tired of being broken for. My prayers answered, there's so much in store. Wanna stack cash from ceiling to floor. Money, money, you're welcome here, my friend. Money, money, we'll have a perfect plan. Money, money, I welcome you, my friend. Money, money, stick with me to the end. Money, the Talking Cash Podcast with your host. Ben Blanchard. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Talking Cash Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Blanchard. I am uh, I'm quite excited for the guest today. Uh, he's my friend, Nick Cavalier, who is a documentary filmmaker and director. So he will be the first non-comedic guest that I've had on the podcast. I'm also excited to have him on um, because he's one of the first people that I told about the podcast. And he was quite encouraging in the start of it all. Sorry if my voice is sounding a little hoarse and a little muffled. Um, I am kind of getting over a cold right now, and uh, it sucks to, to use your voice on the mic when you got a little congestion happening. So uh, deal with that a little bit. It might um, come through in the interview and in the cold open right now. Also, I want to talk about um, consistency of the podcast. I know that I set out uh, in the beginning to put this podcast out every week. And I did for the first five weeks. I took a two-week hiatus because I was uh, busy with producing The Manor Show and other comedy shows. And whoever is listening and went out to The Manor Show, I thank you very much. We had a great turnout for it. We had about 200 people, all the comics crushed, and we had a blast afterwards. And um, But that's been taking up a lot of my time, so I'm going to try to put a little less pressure on myself with the podcast. And with the goal of trying to put it out every week, but also giving myself time to get the interviews that I want to um, in the space and time that I want to as well. So if there's not a, uh, a consistent you know, release every week of the podcast, it is still happening, and I will try to put them out every Tuesday, but there might be some breaks every now and again. If you're listening to this today on March 8th, please come out to the Commons Comedy Show in Santa Monica at 30. We have a really nice lineup. The lineup is going to be Dave Ross, Chinadu Unaka. We also have Andy Lazarus and Patrick Ney. That's tonight at 8.30 at the Commons Ale House. Also, I will be at the Tenants of the Trees show, hosted by Nina Tarr in Silver Lake on Sunday, March 13th at 9 p.m. That's it for me. Uh, please enjoy the interview with my good friend, Nick Cavalier. Oh, there we go. Check one, two. <laughs> Classic. <fucking> dummy. <laughs> <laughs> it always takes a couple minutes to figure this shit out. Fucking hilarious. Dude, I'm excited to have you on. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on for two reasons. One is that I told you about this idea a long time ago, and you were excited about it. I think this was at... We were drinking it like after you got off work. This was at Lexington Avenue, yeah. where I live. I remember that it was probably three in the morning. <laughs> you were sleeping on our couch. <laughs> yep. And I was like, dude, I got this idea about this podcast. And then we had like a couple IPAs. Yep. And then I described it to you. And now we're here in your studio apartment. I don't want people to know that. <laughs> just... Oh, in your mansion. I'm sorry. In your, <laughs> no, no, no. In your enormous mansion <laughs> where there's spaghetti bolognese and meatballs. Well, that is happening even cooking. in the studio. <laughs> and the other reason why I'm excited to have you on is because you're the first non-comedian to get interviewed on this podcast. For real? Yeah. Awesome. 
So explain what what do you like to be called at creatively? Videographer, cinematographer, director, director for sure. But I also hate that term because it's loaded. You the know? retention of it. Yeah, yeah. It's like filmmaker. Like I technically, Auteur. I technically am like an award-winning filmmaker, but I'll never introduce myself as at. I think it's so ridiculous. So, so yeah. director. So you're the first director on, which is great, and also the first non-comedic person, which is also good. Yeah. So welcome. Well, hopefully I can live up to the expectation of <laughs> the first person. That- yeah, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, we're yeah. just talking here. You have a couple projects that you're working on right now. That and, and the film is the big thing because that's like that's going to change my life. I mean, not necessarily financially, but it's like it's it's just such a personal project. And then also like it it's it's going to bring me the attention that I've been trying to get with the other work and the other things I've been doing for so long. It's kind of culminating right now. Yeah, like at this weird tipping point, which is exciting. Well, we'll talk about that later. I always pronounce your last name Cavalier, but I don't think I say it the right way. No, that's right. That's right? Okay. Yeah, I mean, the, the real last name was Cavalera back in the day, but that's when my grandfather came, he, that was, they changed all that. So That's what I figured. I was yeah. just like, so this is Nick Cavalier, who you're listening to with me right now. So I'm glad I got the name right, because we've known each other for, what, over a year and a half? Yeah. And it's like one of that point, like when you reach that point of no return with someone's name, where you just go with what you think it is, <laughs> you know, and you're called, too scared to ask I've anymore. Call the whole hell of a lot worse. So by telemarketers, like Mr. Cavalier, you know, or like, like some... Trying to be all fancy. Yeah, it's, it's like, like ah. no, it's not French. Right. <laughs> but, exactly. Yeah. So we met through our friends, our mutual friends, Billy and Greg. Yep. And you met them through through your work with Tom Glunt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You should have him on too. He's a great interview. Yeah, yeah. I, I've only met him a couple times, but I would like to have him on. Yeah, he's an interesting personality. He's a goofy guy. He's the best, though. So I think we met through them and and hung out a few times and hit it off. Mm-hmm. And you went to a couple of the Comedy at the Manor shows and always been a big supporter of those, which I appreciate. Hell yeah! I want to do the other one you do too at some point. What's that? The Commons or whatever. Oh yeah, that that shows more of like a. It's just like a bar. Classic bar stand-up show. Sweet. Uh, but it's fun. Where were you born? Where are you coming from? I'm from Cleveland, which most people who are out here from Cleveland are like, yeah, Cleveland, which there's some of that too. But um, also like, you know, I'm pretty honest about what Cleveland is. You know, I mean, it's it's an awesome town. The people are amazing. There's a lot of grit to it, but it's just uh, it's not the place if you want to be doing anything creative. I mean, it is now. But it wasn't when I was there because it's just it's the city's changed so much. I went to school in Columbus at, at the uh, university. No, at I, no, I was always hanging out down at Ohio State. I had a lot of friends that went there and stuff. But no, I went to uh, Columbus College of Art and Design. You know, I don't know how deep deep you want to go, but that was sort of like amazing that I was even able to go to an art school. You know, since you're talking about money, because it's, first of all, it's expensive, and second of all, I was a juvenile delinquent, so. <laughs> So there is like a lot of things that happened for me to be able to go to college. And one of them was an art school, high school art teacher. And I was getting expelled. And she's like, you know what? We were going to consider him for the program in a year anyway. So just let him in a year early and don't expel him. And we'll take him in the vocational program. So that got me a scholarship. And that scholarship got me to school. And then from school, I got out and the economy tanked. And uh, so I took a job in advertising in Chicago. And then I worked in Chicago for a year there, quit, started my own thing, like doing my own freelance. And I had been doing music videos for like six years up until that point, not really having a name, but like doing some big acts, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of thing. 
And then uh, I left, dove into the full-time freelance life in Chicago, and then I moved to L.A. And I met you literally the like two months in. <laughs> well, I- let's go. Let's go back a little bit because I want to talk about Cleveland. And were you growing up in a suburb in Cleveland, or was it directly in the city? Sort of like because um, I like to kind of talk about like when people grow up, what the environment was like that they grew up in socioeconomically yeah and were there industries around what kind of were the major jobs that people's parents were doing i I was in a weird place a place called solon ohio it's the number one school system in cleveland it was at the time and that's why my parents moved there um and it's really weird town because it's split down the middle like there's a lot of very rich wealthy people doctors lawyers whatever you know five hundred thousand dollar homes which in ohio is like Mega mansion? Yeah, like a $30 million home here, you know? And, you know, five acres and just whatever. So it's sort of like the suburbs, sort of like the country, and but it's also 20 minutes from downtown. So for people who work at the hospital, the Cleveland Clinic, or, you know, they're lawyers in private practice or anything like that, it's an ideal place to live. And, you know, my friends that live in the city used to come there and they'd be like, this is Mayberry, dude. Like Pleasantville kind of thing? Yeah, but the weird thing about it being split is... Because the school systems are so great, that's it's not all affluent people. Like, you know, my family came there. My dad grew up in a place called Chesterland, which was literally like a dirt gravel road, you know, country place for many years. And he's second gen? Yeah. Uh, Immigrant? Yes. Yeah, well, no. He So my great-grandfather came here. His name was Giuseppe Tommaso Cavallera. Awesome name. And he came during pre-Mussolini. So... Uh, it was Vittorio Emmanuel III. So he got out. He was like, well, he was eight. His parents were like, this country's going to go under. And they were farmers. And they didn't have That's pretty amazing that they had the foresight to make that move. Well, he was, the reason most people don't know this, but Mussolini was actually just like Hitler in a lot of ways. He was the saving grace to that place when he first came in because the people before it ran that country into the ground, much like how Greece and Italy has an economic problem now, but... That country was destitute poverty for most places. And when he came in, he started making changes, and he did a lot for history and the culture and the country. But then it, you know, he sided with Hitler, and yeah, know that. got corrupted. Yeah, but so before that, they they just thought of it from money, from an opportunity standpoint. And there was the big thing with a lot of Italian immigrants was, you know, hey, there's work in the states, and they don't care, so go, and you'll have people here that you could talk to. Well, my great grandparents came; they didn't know anybody. And they were so poor, They at Ellis Island, they gave up my grandfather. Now, I don't know if I got this right, because my uncle's told me this story a million times. Yeah, it's probably changed like, a few times. And, and this is just how I remember it. But when he came, like he got put in an orphanage then. Didn't speak the language. He was eight. And he stayed in there until he was 18. And then he got out, and um, he was a carpenter, butcher, did every manual labor job. Built his house with his own hands after he got married to my great-grandmother. They had my dad, my aunt, my uncle, or my grandfather, my bad. And then they had she. He got married shortly thereafter. Dad, aunt, uncle, and so there's. So I'm really only like fifty percent Italian. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom's side of the family's from Poland, so she's second generation, and they grew up in a, like beyond poor. Like she told me stories of you know being able having to like um, their dessert was like scraping the inside of a Ready Whip can, yeah, like, you know with their fingers. Yeah, they had six brothers and sisters. They lived in a, a church called St. Francis Church. Her dad, they couldn't pay him, so they gave him a house and food, and that was the trade. I definitely doesn't have... that make you feel like a little insignificant? The fact that we're just like 
recording a podcast in a studio apartment in LA and like we're struggling but like not not nearly, really not no. sharing ready whip with our with our siblings struggling true but i think it also like you know i've and i'm sure if you have greg on he'll tell you the same stuff but like you you start to hear the stories and you're like hey yeah yeah, yeah when you're a kid but then the only time I ever felt connected to that in some way was when I started pursuing my own dream because mm-hmm. there were months and there still are months sometimes where money is tight and you're doing it for a greater cause, much like they did, but not as noble. And it's unknown too. It's very unknown. The future. And you're just sort of like, oh, okay. You know, and the other thing is, you know, we all, because they're both sides of my family were poor, they're amazing cooks. And that's that's another thing that saved my life because instead of getting ramen noodles and eating that all the time like I'm in college, I actually make food from scratch and it'll last me months. Like if I get fifty dollars worth of grocery, I can make it last a month. And that's just being able to cook and So was your dad kind of the same uh, jack of all trades as like your great grandparents? Like was he when he moved to move you guys into a better school district, was he doing a lot of different jobs or was he just a careersman or what did he do for work? It's a weird thing. Um, I actually always use my dad as an example of why I got into what I do mm-hmm. because um, two, two things, he's always been an amazing carpenter. My grand, great-grandfather and then his dad, Joe, you know, Jose, Giuseppe and Joe, they, they were all tradesmen. My grandfather was a butcher and so he picked up all this stuff just from being around these guys. You know, when he was born, they had just finished completing the house, and three generations of that family lived in that house. And then there was obviously a lot of maintenance and things over the years. So his grandfather, the one that came over the, on the boat, taught him everything he knows about carpentry or whatever. Now, he never used it professionally up until he retired, other than odd-end jobs on the weekends for friends and things. But him and I built, you know, our own, our, the whole front porch in our house is a 35-foot deck. It's like 12 feet out and 35 feet long. It was literally just three concrete steps, and we built it in the summer, just me and him and one of his friends. That tradesman thing taught me a lot about work ethic and yada, yada. And, you know, being like when he was 14, he's like, you got a job yet? I'm like, Dad, I can't. It's illegal. I don't give a shit. Yeah, <laughs> you exactly. Get a job, you know, like... That's like kind of like a very like Italian thing though too is is masonry and carpentry and that because there's this great book I think I recommended to you called Brotherhood of the Grave yep by John Fonte and it's the same thing like his his father's an old mason he's dying and it's kind of like dying wishes to have his, his son build like this little church steeple with him and it's just that connection of building something together with your dad oh yeah and you know seeing his downfalls and then also connecting in a different way it's a great book though if you should, you should check it out. I will. That's the only so time was he, I ever... What was he doing for, for cash? You said that he did that when he retired, but what was he doing for cash when he was yeah. when you were growing up? Was it kind of just like anything that he could do? No, I mean, so when he got married, so my parents got married older. My mom was 36 when she had me. My dad's six years younger than her. So he's like in his early 30s when he had me. And he had been working at AT&T because my grandfather, not my great-grandfather, he was, um, he worked at, what was then Ohio Bell back in the day, climbing the telephone poles and all that stuff, and then worked his way into like a more of a managerial type position. And he he's like, you know, I need a job, Dad. And the, there was no college back then. Nobody went to college. So he just started working. And he worked his way up from the mailroom, my dad. And he then he did everything. He climbed telephone poles. He did um, uh, disaster recovery is what he ended up doing later, which was basically if the whole Eastern seaboard phone lines went down, he was spending five days there fixing it with guys, you know, and a team of people and things like that. So, um, but he hated his job. 
he hated it very much. Um, and he also got screwed out of, you know, 30 years of pension for really. Yeah. AT&T. I, I don't know the specifics, but they, they changed companies a bunch of times. It went to singular and then to like, um, uh, IBM and then from IBM back to singular and then from singular back to AT&T and somewhere in that mess, like over 600 something employees got screwed out of wow. pension and everything. He wasn't the only one, you know, and that's also a, the catalyst for me to, to do what I wanted to do because I realized there was no job security in anything anymore. And he was loyal. I mean, he was a die on the sword for that company guy for his whole life. And it just was so wrong. And so now he's, you know, he just had shoulder surgery and his back's killing him and he's out doing porches and doing bathrooms and doing, never ends. Yeah. So, you know, and I, was your mom a stay at home mom or was she in the workforce as well? A little bit of both. When I was a kid, she's, my mom is like the antithesis of my dad. My dad is like, I, you know, I, I always use the analogy, like I could kill like 25 people just go on a murdering spree. My dad would go, my dad would go, ah, he's an asshole. Lock him in jail. You know, my mom would go, oh, he's just hungry. You need to give him some food. You know, like they're just so opposite of each other. And my mom was like the nurturing whatever type. So when we were little kids, she was with us during the day. And then my dad would get back from work and then we'd go and do stuff. And then he'd spend the weekends with us and she would work part time at this place called the Solon Athletic Club. And one of my first jobs was actually with her and my cousin, Joe, who's the oldest of my dad's side of the family, uh, cousins. And we scrubbed the saunas in the, oh, it's the worst job ever. It's like one of my first jobs. It's just sweat and God knows whatever else it was in there. It was horrible. Yeah. So she worked, but she, you know, she, before she met my dad, she was the, um, and this actually comes to play. She got lung cancer later in her life, but at the Cleveland clinic, she was, um, the, God, what do they call it? Like reception, not receptionist, but more than that. She did more than she like for all the doctors. She did like a personal assistant type thing. And when, and she knew all the doctors when they're in their residencies that are now like the best oncologists and whatever. So when she got cancer, like she had amazing treatment, which was pretty amazing. So you're scrubbing saunas in, in middle school or high school? <laughs> yeah. Well, middle school shit. I was like, was that your first I, job? I, think ever? I was like 11. Yeah. It was my first job. And were they paying you? No, they couldn't pay me. Yeah. I just, I mean, I think they paid my mom and then whatever, but they could, you know, you're 10 places since closed. So I can easily say, you know, it's right. a big deal, but she was friends with the owners and she'd worked there for 10 years. Yeah, it's probably more like babysitting slash working. <laughs> my cousin Joe is 14. So he was legally getting paid and that's, they needed the extra hand. And my brother was always the kid who never wanted to do anything physical labor wise. And I did, I had an interest in and then after that, I did every job under the sun. I did, uh, I was at, a, I, were, I pushed carts at a place called Giant Eagle, and then I was a cashier, and that lasted all about three weeks. Until Is that like, a grocery store chain? Yeah, like Stop and Shop was the name of it then, and then it turned into Giant Eagle. It's sort of like Vons or Ralph's out here or whatever. And, you know, I just was not personable. I couldn't bite my tongue. Couldn't fake it. Yeah, I just couldn't do customer service. So I went back out and pushed carts and <laughs> stock boy or whatever. Yeah, I, I did that. They called it a cart jockey. Yeah, exactly. What a ridiculous name for what you're doing, just corralling I, carts uh, in the parking lot. I actually loved it, man, because there's there's these crazy people in town. There's this one guy named Goober. Everyone called him Goober. I don't know his real name. He would walk around Solon, this town, and chain smoke cigarettes, and he would come in a giant eagle overnight. Uh, sometimes twice a night and buy a couple 45, you know, Colt 45s yeah. and just walk around with it in a, in a bag and you just walk around and chain smoke. And everyone had these like, in my high school were like, Oh, well he was, uh, 
he was a, a genius. He was graduating early. He was like a sophomore, and he was a, in high school. He had a full scholarship to Harvard, da, 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 all this stuff. And somebody spiked the punch at his at the prom and he, with LSD. And they had all these crazy stories about this guy. About his like mythology? Yeah, like who he was. And, what, and I would sit there and talk to that guy all night. He was a little out there, but he wasn't. He wasn't like that. I mean, he—you could tell he was a very smart guy at some point, and something went wrong. But he wasn't fried. He was there, and the people look at him like he's this non-human person. So I actually really enjoyed that job because I got to talk yeah. to this really connected with Goober. Yeah, crazy dude. I mean, he was—he was interesting. I should say he's just an interesting guy. He's just an addict, probably who lost his way. I think he was just an alcoholic. I don't think it was anything spectacular like that, but that's what folklore's for, though. Yeah, exactly. So when you were growing up in that is Sullen, Ohio, you mentioned this divide between classes. Did you and you guys obviously felt a kind of more? Not, I wouldn't say you guys were in poverty. Doesn't sound like that. No, but I mean middle, like lower yeah. middle class, middle class, lower middle class. Was your friend group like that same way, or were you mixing in with affluent families, poor families? What was like your social setting with with your family and with your friends? It, when I was young, up until the time I was probably middle school age, it didn't matter. As most people, it didn't matter. Like, you just went to somebody's house. But it became pretty obvious to but me. But do you remember, like, the first time you saw, like, a mega mansion, like, yes. what you thought? Oh, yeah. I was like, what? People live like this? Like, I didn't get it. I mean, they, I remember that they had phones. And this is obviously before cell phones. This person had phones in their house uh, in the basement to call up like an intercom system because they couldn't call each other because the house is so big. And I was like, that's crazy. My family would still try to yell. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, but no, it was, it was wild. And they had like a disco ball and a dance floor in their basement and a full bar. And I was like, this is crazy. And you know, now when you're an adult and you go to a real mansion, you're like, this is, this isn't shit. But it's like, yeah. when you're a kid, you're like, holy shit. I can't believe people live like this. You know? I know. It's amazing. Yeah. And so, it, yeah, when you got to high school age, you sort of, like my best friend since high school or since like preschool, we've known each other since we were in kindergarten is my friend, Chris Betts. And he, his, he came from, his family came from Poland. I mean, his dad and his mom literally came with them. He went to school in Poland. Um, he's my best friend and they were just, they were the same situation as us. He just hardworking people, salt of the earth. And so eventually when you got older and you have a perspective on the world, I sort of gravitated to people like that. And I still do. I mean, I have friends from all, but I, there's something about somebody going for it and like just sacrificing that. That's why I love you guys, the comedians. Yeah. Like you're living this lifestyle. It's righteous. It's like who you are, you know. Like yeah, it's just more relatable because you know I always say this. Like even if you're doing comedy or like any kind of creative field, it, the struggle is always the same, and typically the path is usually the same too. So that's I think why we can relate as creative people. I just it's a respect thing for me. It's like I really respect like somebody who really lives that life like a warrior mentality, you're dying on the shield. Mm -hmm. I will go out and I'll die a beautiful death. As a Spartan said, like I want to do this or nothing at all. I get paranoid sometimes that putting all of your eggs in this basket, because I don't know if I can do anything else. <laughs> well, but yeah, especially when you don't have a boss anymore and you've, ne you know, for me, like going self-employed, that was the thing. I was like, fuck the people. Why do people work at places at all? I, know. <laughs> like, I didn't understand it, but I, you know, the, I guess there's that always that thing, you know, you can fall back on a job. You know that you're capable. You're not an idiot. You have all two arms <laughs> and two legs. Like you can work. You're not injured. Like the, the, you can do things. Um, that's the way I look at it. Like if I have to, I'll go do roofing or something or whatever. So I'm interested in, in how you became a delinquent in high school. Well, was this petty crime? 
No, no, no. I never did anything really that bad. I, so I, and this will tie into the film later, but I was, I'm bipolar. Like I was diagnosed when I was 10 years old. I was having like, um, they thought I was schizophrenic because I had daylight hallucinations and stuff, but then they figured I was hypomanic. So I was in a crazy manic state and I would just, your mind wanders and your sense of reality slips. And so then when I was diagnosed, um, you know, it made me like sort of alienated socially, you know, especially at that time. Were you keeping that private for a long time? Yeah, but when you have to take pills five times a day and you have to leave class and, you know, you're falling behind, asleep in class because of the medication, you put on weight and then you do this and that and it, it just makes... It's hard to hide probably. Yeah, I mean, and then you're trying to fit in, you're trying to find your social groups and this happened from the time I was 10 Till the time I was 19 and I went to school, like to college. I actually went cold turkey on my medication then, and that's where I found out a lot about myself. Literally, I, I mean, I think it's criminal how these psychologists can diagnose a kid at 10. He's 10. And my metabolism got so screwed up from all that stuff, man. I mean, for years it took me – I mean, that's why I got into to kickboxing and stuff because I was like, I need to lose weight. I need to get in shape. If I eat like – like we're going to have pasta after this. If I eat that, I have to run like five miles tomorrow because my body would just it, – it, it shocked my system. You look at pictures of me when I was a little kid. I was like a skinny guinea. Like I always was skinny. I always could eat whatever hell I wanted and then after that, it, it changed my life. But yeah, that, that sort of got me picked on and then I was like into the arts and music and I played sports. So you didn't fit in anywhere and nobody liked me and they picked on me and I didn't – really uh i don't know i mean it, it doesn't looking back on it it made me who i am today so it doesn't bother me but i also my dad was always like you know if somebody hits you you got to hit them back harder and make sure it counts and hit them in the bridge of the nose or whatever so you know i that's a lot of the problems i had was because people would so start re- shit physical reactions to or emotional yeah. yeah but yeah i mean like when I was in middle school. But acting out physically. Yes, yeah. Like when I was in middle school, the whole art, I remember this vividly, like the whole art class, first of all, my teacher was just a giant, she was a bitch. I, I remember her very vividly. I can't remember her name, but I remember her face. And she was one of those people who tried to squash her dreams, you know, and I loved to draw. I was always drawing, and she's like, it's not very good. You're going to be an artist? Yeah, exactly. But she was an art teacher. Like you should be helping people. Well, she like, was probably just bitter at her own failures and yeah Yeah. looking back on that's exactly what it was but so you know one day she i made some comment about or asked some question and she made fun of my question or something and the whole class like like kind of moment like simpsons and i just lost it i just lost it and i was like balling up all this anger and this is really young i was like probably 14 or something like that you know and (laughs) They went, she was giving everybody, showing everybody how to use the kiln in the kiln, this room. I mean, I didn't lock them in a kiln, so don't take this the wrong way, but I locked all the whole class in this room with a chair up against the door and deadbolted the door and left. I just walked home. Five oh my miles God. To my parents' house. Yeah. And then the. That's kind that, of hilarious, though. <laughs> I know. And that was a, the first time the principal knew my name, and then she never forgot it for the rest of school. And, this, and the. How'd they get out? Uh, I think the custodian heard him banging and whatever. I don't know the details, but I assume that was what it was. And yeah. And then, so I would just, I would do stupid stuff like that. You know, (laughs) some kid picked on, uh, my buddy Brian and I one day in recess, this is like begin like freshman year of high school. And we jumped on him. We both jumped on him at the same time, like double leg. And, uh, we broke his arm 
and he was a rich kid, and he tried to sue both of us. It's like this whole mess. Is I think I there was a slaw. I can't remember. Is that why you got expelled? No, no, I got ex- I got expelled because it was just the culmination of everything. Over, he's a danger to the people's education. He's a danger to himself. He's a danger to people around him. I was like, meanwhile, I wouldn't have done any of this if nobody did anything to me. Thank God for my mom because you were she was, like a victim of a bully. Like you were bully, getting bullied. Yeah, by but her. I don't look at it that way because kids are kids. Right. It wasn't like the, I was the only one they were picking on. You know, like there's anybody who was weird and it, it's sort of like a pecking order type thing because I remember vividly me making fun of certain kids as well. And then I remember feeling horrible because I was made fun of. So I was like, now I know what that feels like, but it was like, you would always pick on the, the low hanging fruit, but then, and it, you know, Cleveland's a weird place cause it's sort of like the East coast and it's sort of Midwest. So people are really pretty rough, you know, it's, it's a very different place. Mm-hmm. And so it was very physical and it also was a D one football school, D one wrestling school, D one volleyball school, D one soccer school. It's a D one school. Right. So there's so a lot of jocks, just, jock mentality. And also just competitive. Everyone's competitive. So, and you're all immature idiots. So, you know, I don't blame anybody in, but myself, I made some stupid decisions and along with that, too, I got put in mental hospital because they didn't want to put me in juvenile homes and stuff. So they put me in a mental hospital, and that was really crazy. That was like – and I, there was no reason for me to be there in that way. Like it's yeah. not like I tried to kill myself or um, I had hurt somebody. How long were you in there for? Six months the first time. Wow. 16. And then uh, two months the second time – or no, that was 10. I was two months, and then when I was 16 for, for six months. And, Holy uh, shit, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Pretty brutal stuff. But when I was a little kid is the one that was the craziest because you're a little kid in a juvenile ward with all these kids who are just insane. I mean, I was not like that. I was just having medication issues or whatever, and they needed to test my blood or whatever. That shaped a lot of my empathy, I guess, when I left too. And also, um, it made me realize that things weren't that bad. You know, I should stop being a, an idiot and acting out. So do you think that if that didn't happen to you, you would have gone into the vocational school and you would have still taken that path to the Cleveland Arts and Design School? Absolutely. Because the only thing that it did is it, it forced the hand of the school to, to, to make us a, a, a – they basically had to do something about me because I was a problem now. And they couldn't spend the time taking away from other kids' curriculum to deal with my bullshit. So they're like, hey, and thank God for Mrs. Cavada. I mean, if she, if she listens to this or I know her son might because we're friends. It's like she really did give me a chance where nobody else believed in me. And I was gifted naturally for art. Um, still like to draw, but that really allowed me to spend six hours out of the, what is it, schools like eight hours, six hours, something like that. Uh, half of that day, every day was spent just drawing. And that is what I like to do. If, you, if I was in math class... I was drawing on the margins. I wasn't paying attention. I didn't give a shit about any of that. Once I learned how to add, multiply, subtract, and divide, <laughs> I was done. Pythagorean theorem, okay, I understand what that is because of carpentry, but do I need to know this? When am I ever going to use it? It's so funny to think about that now, too, with technology. Oh, my God. Like, it, all the things that you don't yeah. need to learn at all. Remember when people were like, I remember my dad saying, listen, you need to learn how to multiply because you're not going to have a calculator with you all the time. You can't carry around that damn big calculator with you all the time. I'm yeah. like, okay, Dad, yeah. Now, meanwhile, you just pull it out of your yeah. pants and you're just like oh yeah what's that exactly <laughs> it's nuts yeah like i even think about like i was like ah, i wish they taught me how to text like properly when i was younger you know it's just been yeah. like using our thumbs for everything oh my god i didn't even have a cell phone until i was 19 
because just my parents were like, nope, no, you're not allowed. That wouldn't happen today, though. No way. No way. Yeah, no. I mean, I remember literally breaking down on the side of the road when I was first starting to drive. And I didn't drive until I was like 18. And I broke down, and I couldn't call anybody, and I had to walk. I had to walk to a gas station with just to get gas to come back. Like, nobody does that anymore. We're kind of weaklings because of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. The vocational school led into the the scholarship opportunity for you then. Mm-hmm. So how much, if you didn't get the scholarship, how much do you have to pay for the school that you went to? Well, that's sort of the rub. The school is a good school, but um, it's a lot of money for art school. And uh rather leave... Well, whatever. Did you get a full scholarship? No, 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 no. Shit, I wish. Oh, my God, that'd be amazing. No, I, I got 40000 for four years or something like that, which for most colleges, that would pay for everything, but not for art school. It was like, it came out to like a quarter of the tuition, you know, or something like that. And you took out loans for the rest? Yeah. And you still got those? Yeah. My parents help as much as they can, you know, but, um, you know, try to do the best you can it's also i i believe i mean it's it's pretty fucked up that the the school systems are the way they are the high especially higher education but i don't believe that art school is necessary and i can go into that um i mean for what i do it's for let's say for like fashion or like illustrate there's definitely a there's definitely a need for it for that for for a lot of things but with film and stuff i mean the value is getting lower and lower every day because you can go to a rental house and just rent the gear and do it. Granted, you don't have the hands-on and you don't have the access to the instructors, but unless you're living in L.A. or New York, I don't think film school is necessary. I mean, I think you just need to go and make films or make... Well, that's how you learn yeah. with a lot of things. Yeah. It's just yeah. getting out there and doing it. I mean, it, don't get me wrong. School was huge for me. It was, um, you know, it, it, it adapted me socially. It, um, it helped me... Um, learn fundamentals and structure and things like that. Um, but I'm, I'm a very different person. I'm very driven, self-driven, and I would be, I have a thirst for that sort of thing. Like I'll find a way to do it. A lot of kids who are artists though, by nature, they're not that way. So I think it's a really good thing for, I think people like that, but so all, go, looking back on it, would you have, if you had the choice, would you have not gone to college? Absolutely not. I met some of the best friends I have to this day. I, I met so many amazing people. I was very inspired by the whole thing. But I, if you look at it just as a business exchange, just straight numbers, I think it was. It's not the best decision. No, you know, like, I, I agree with you on that. So after college, you went directly to Chicago. Sort of. I. I. So when I was in school, um, I really wanted to be. I was in school for fine arts, and then at the end of the first year, you have to declare your major. And I wanted to do animation, 2D animation. And my instructor, Tom Richner, amazing guy, he was timing layout arts for The Simpsons. He was like, hey, you know, a lot of this is going to India, the keyframing, the in-betweens, da-da-da. Um, there's fewer and fewer jobs. And he just tells the whole class this, like, on the first day of, like, basic animation. He said, but you guys all are all here for a reason. You know, you need to take this in and learn the skill and da 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 And we're talking drawn frame by frame, like Disney style, like way back in the day. And um, I really love that process. That's what I wanted to do was just sell animation. And, you know, Flash was out and um, After Effects. And so we didn't even touch any of that. We did it all by hand. And we scanned them in one at a time and like like you would shoot them with a photography four by five like they did back in the day and just learned it old school. And I'm forever grateful for that because it taught me so much about frame rates when I got into video. It taught me technical of everything. It's amazing. 
But him being pragmatic about that was like, oh, man, maybe I should think about changing my major or whatever. And at the time, um, I, you know, I'm a huge metalhead. I've been into metal music since I was a little kid, the angst. But, uh, but yeah, I, I was like, I met my friend DJ, and he, he was in a metal band as well when I, you know, at the same time. And, and we both quit. We, we quit our bands when we went to school. And he's like, yeah, man, we should, like, start doing music videos. So we did we just started doing we just hit up bands we liked or um you know people we knew and we just started doing music videos now our gear rental place they in the school they hated it because we were making money off of their gear that we got for free right <laughs> so we're like hey victor records give us like 5 grand and we'll do your video granted it wasn't free we're paying tuition but we're right. taking their gear, we're driving to Indiana and shooting a metal video, and then coming back. But um, what could they do about but it? What they could do, and here's the other thing. If we were getting that experience in our classes, we wouldn't have been doing it. Right. You had to do it on your own. It, and honestly, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of kids in our class, and I think DJ and I and a few of our other friends are like, the ones who took that initiative are the ones who are successful. Would you consider those gigs to be like your first paid creative job? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that that was like, and it's funny, we didn't ever, in the beginning, we were doing them for free, and then the labels just started going, well, how does this sound? And at that time, it was before music videos started, especially in the indie world, started to like lose value. It was still kind of a single-driven market. Like, we're talking like I graduated high school in 2004, I think. So 2004 to 2010 was when I went to school, and then, you know, then... I went out into the workforce. So from junior year or from end of sophomore year, beginning of junior year, halfway through to through till the end, that's what we did. We just started doing it. We were like, we got to do this, man. It's, you know, and we were also passionate about it. We want, we, we, I would remember going to his house. Like he, he was from Columbus, Ohio and we'd, we'd go to his house and we just listen to metal the whole way there. And we lived it, man. We loved it. Yeah. It was, it's, it's really cool looking back on it. Like it was such an amazing experience and he's still one of my best friends here. You know, he's here too as well in LA. Cause that's how you get, that's how you met Tom, right? Through music videos? No, actually, weirdly enough, we have some of the same friends. So, um, my friend, John Pope, the cinematographer who shot my movie and, um, a lot of their, the post house he works for animal. They're from Pittsburgh. And, uh, I met John on a, on a music video I worked on with DJ way back in the day. And a guy named Andy Real, who's directing it. And it was like the first one I, me and him assisted on before we started doing it ourselves. And they were basically the catalyst to be like, hey, you can do this. You know, like, look, we're doing it. You know, like, go ahead, do it. Try to do it, you know. And so John, fast forward 10 years later, is working for Animal. And Tom is from Pittsburgh. And he knows that whole group of people. Ah, small world. Now I moved to Chicago. Tom was in Chicago, about to move to L.A. And our mutual friend, Jonathan LeCoque, introduced us at a party. He said, you guys should know each other. We met each other. And we became really good friends, like, right off the bat. And uh, then he moved here first. And I had to get a lot of my finances in order. And then I moved here. And literally, like, back to back. And we've been friends since. We've roomed together yeah. for a while. I've known you since you've lived in L.A. And you've gone through a couple hills and valleys financially. That's you, an <laughs> understatement. Yeah. So can you kind of explain how that feels to have an uncertain paycheck but still pursuing your dreams? And is there ever a point where you think that you're going to be bro so broke that you have to move out of L.A.? Or are you always going to stick it out here? I don't look at L.A. like a lot of people do, I think, is the first thing. Like, I look at it as a place that I have to be in to have the infrastructure to do what I want to do. I also don't look at what I do as something special. I know that there's millions of guys like me out there. Mm -hmm. I enjoy what I do. I enjoy storytelling and I enjoy the craft of making 
the said thing, right? The process. I love the process. I love the process. I love the result. And I love the fulfillment that you get from that. It's, um, so f- the money part is not my motivation. That's just the first most important thing. And I think a lot of people out here are more status driven than in any of the other cities I've worked in. New York, there's some of that as well, but there's still a grit there. There's, there's definitely a grit here too, but people who are at the Hollywood parties are not the ones that are, in my opinion, are, are, are like that. The people that I surround myself with, they really care about the craft. So that being said, focus on from that lens when I say these things. I came here uh, had, having already been freelance for five year, or three years in Chicago. And it's a smaller market. So you were already doing it. I was already doing it. You had the confidence. It. I was already doing it. You were I making knew, some bucks. I knew that I had a glass ceiling in Chicago as far as fi- uh, creatively. Not financially. You can make quite a bit of money there, and you can, but you're going to be doing corporate jobs. And, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make – I wanted to be paid that kind of money doing the stuff I was really passionate about. So I knew L.A. was the place. My brother lived here. My friends lived here. I was like, screw it. I'm doing it. So I saved up some money, and I moved here. And my, from the second I got here, I was already shooting that film. Now, that just fell in my lap. I was uh, a fan of Derek Hess, the artist, and I was in Cleveland the two weeks before. And this I, is Force Perspective? Yeah, is the name of the film. And, and I was a fan. I've been a fan. You check that out on iTunes? Uh, soon, but right now it's on Vimeo On Demand. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So I, I, I was a huge fan of Derek Hess. Never knew him. Worked for some of the bands he did work for when I was doing music videos. So Do I was, you want to give a quick synopsis of the movie? Yeah, it's uh, Force Perspective's story of um, famed artist Derek Hess, um, his struggles with alcoholism and bipolar, and sort of how that shapes the art. It's sort of like an allegorical. I mean, it's not. If you don't have to be a fan of art or music or whatever to appreciate it, he's um, an underdog hero story. Mm-hmm. He's allegorical, yeah. and that's what I wanted to do with it. Was like it to be a creative beacon for people to pursue something with integrity. So I left and. When I was in Cleveland, like getting while my stuff was getting shipped out here before I took a flight, I was like, um, I was like, you know what? I want to do a short film. I'm here for two weeks. It's the middle of summer. Why not? So I hit him up and I was like, let's shoot tomorrow. I didn't know him. I just cold emailed. He's like, yeah, let's get together. It sounds interesting. I like what you're doing. And I started to get to know him and become his friend. And we did, well, especially with your background with having bipolar disorder yeah. as well, too. Now that's the thing. Well, first of all, we had so many. Some, when I met him, like. Like, we love the same music. I mean, we have very clear ideas of, like, I brought up Metallica, and he's like, ah, greatest band ever, until the Black Hole. I was like, yes, dude. <laughs> like, you know, like, um, not to say that there isn't some good songs on there and albums past, but, like, generally, they fell off. And we just, he's a very uh, absolutist, and so am I. So we just, on a personal level, just got, you know, kind of, and then, um, so we, we, I bonded with him and, and did this thing and did the short. Now, I didn't expect it to ever go anywhere other than a short. And so when I moved to LA, I submitted to Cleveland film festival and then I went back and screened the short there. And then a bunch of people were like, you need to do this. This is the coolest thing ever. You need to make this a real movie. Like, and it just started to happen. So keep in mind when I come to LA, I'm already riding this crazy Mm -hmm. wave of doing a film, never dealt with investors before, never talked like big money like that. I mean, it's not a lot of money, but it's, it was enough to make something substantial. Didn't make a penny off of it you know, during production worked, you know, probably a hundred hour weeks, um, probably 80 on that. And like 20, at least on, on, on my commissions, just so I could pay the bills. And it was the hardest year of my life. The first year of being here in LA, I mean, financially, spiritually, emotionally, it, it was just brutal. I moved three times in a year, 
because the rent was so ridiculous. Like the first place I had was studio. It was $1,300 a month. Uh, I couldn't afford it after they raised it from 1200 to 13, like a hundred in, in the first year. I was like, this is ridiculous. So I moved in with Tom, we had a suite set up and then that landlord sold the building. And then we were in the landlord unit. We had to leave. It was not because we were late on payments or anything. They just, you got to leave. You got to find another place. And that's how I ended up here. And I like it in this neighborhood. I like it. But, you know, that whole journey, like even that, and imagine that with trying to edit a feature film right. and direct it and going back and forth between Cleveland and L.A. and then doing commissions, like all my commissions. It's been the craziest ride ever. And financially, the lowest point. I have my own money in this film, a lot of my own money and what little I had. And, and I'm hoping it does really well because – you know, I would like to recoup that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's also, always the, the uncertainty of independent films too, is you never know. So a lot of them don't make money at all, but, you, but it's they, almost like you, yeah, but you, you know, you invest in almost like your own marketing. Like, Oh, I did this. This gets a lot of attention critically. Yep. And that's what gets to the next project. I love the story. I don't care about making money on this. I don't, I never have never, never will. Um, I'm, it's an honor to be able to tell somebody you're a fan of story. And for him to trust me with that, and I take that very seriously. So the, the, the real reason I did this film was because I'm a fan of Derek Hess. And I made the film that I want to see as a Derek Hess fan and as a fan of art in general, like as a fan of somebody who just puts their balls on the chopping block and goes for it. And he is the epitome of an inspiration. You know, I, I read this book. I think I told you about it, The, the War of Art, mm-hmm. um, Stephen Pressfield. And I actually emailed him and his publicist saying, like, I would love to get a quote from you. Your book was a huge inspiration for this movie, but really Derek Hess, whether he knew it or not, is the basically the like person that he wants the you to be. Personified version of yeah, that, book. In that book. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, his work ethic is ridiculous. It made me feel lazy for working a hundred hours a week. I mean, his body of work when you walk in that studio and you open the drawers. I mean, failed drawing after failed drawing that he thinks are failed, but you look at it. This is amazing, and he's like, "Nah, the hands messed up here." You know, whatever. Perfectionist. Yeah. And just the, the dedication to his craft. Like, I left that experience just fired up to take on the world. Like, it was really amazing. And I hope that that's what the film does for people because the one thing that I, I've, I think, you know, helps when you're in that situation of finances to, like, know that even if you are, it's not going to be this way forever. And it may be this way forever, but I'm okay with not making a lot of money and just being able to travel and do commissions and make these amazing films that people enjoy. I mean, I just got done doing a, a documentary on two winemakers in Paso Robles, you know, Robles. It was an experience. Like I got to see with a, you know, wine specter top 100s winemaker. I got full access to his brain. Like people would pay lots of money to do that. Now I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid to go and have that experience. Like I would rather live that life a million times over and be poor and just be able to have those experiences than to, you know, work some job I don't like and have a lot of money. And it's really just a lifestyle choice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like comedy is probably the same way, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, eventually it's, it's a little bit, I mean, at this point for me, it's not a lot of travel or anything, but eventually if you do hit the road, you get those same experiences. I would, but now it's, you know, now it's just grinding in LA, Yeah, which is fun. But the people that you meet, that's the invaluable part of it, in my opinion, with comedy. Just like the the culture around it, the other comics, the writers, and just that whole philosophy of art and creativity. Yeah. And this is like what we're doing. We no one told us to do this. We decided to do it, or it just like called to you. Yeah. Like it's one thing. Like I always tell people, 
try to do what you do. The first thing that you wake up, what you think about, and then the last thing you think about before you go to bed. And that's what I say to pursue. That's good advice. Yeah, it's it's weird. Because like I'm sure you can't turn it off either. No. Constantly thinking about your projects, what's next, you know, the editing. But I think it's more of a spiritual thing. Like, to, for me anyway, it's like um, I, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is that I love. I'm very competitive and I like a challenge. I think one thing I really love about being a filmmaker or being a director is that every project is different and everyone has their own challenges and you're constantly trying to get more efficient and better at everything. But the next project you do is going to be a completely different set of circumstances. And I'm sure it's just like writing a joke. Like mm-hmm. you, you grow or, as yeah. you're doing it. And like, like even just the, the environment of performing on different clubs and locations and coffee shops and bars and house parties. Like every show is different because every audience is different. And you never will have the same show twice. No matter how, if you do the same exact jokes for those shows, you'll never have the same show twice. Laughs will happen at a different point when you didn't expect them or they don't happen when you're supposed to expect them. So it's... Yeah, the foreign... You know what's cool about that too is like you're still uniquely you. Mm -hmm. See, that's that's the integrity part of art in my opinion. Like I got into a really um, deep philosophical conversation with a friend of mine about... Like because I hate modern art. I think modern art, like, you know, MoMA or whatever in L.A., mm-hmm. get the fuck out of here with that. Like, a plexiglass box in a gallery, shut right. up. <laughs> Here's the way I gauge art, okay? If if 100,000 years from now, after the, the volcano erupts and civilization ends and cell phones are gone, and it's a, or it's a zombie apocalypse or whatever the hell it is, if people are walking by... Will they even know that what you made is art? You know, like you can go Timeless. to the, you can go to the ancient ruins of Egypt and know what art was. You can go to Rome and see what art was. You can go to France or Spain or anywhere. But modern art, if the, there's not a little plaque on it next to the wall and it says, <laughs> "This is man's frustration with red paints," yeah. oh, go fuck yourself. Yeah. That shit is infuriating me because then you meet a guy like Derek Hess and he's really expressing his soul, and you're like. This is what people are rewarding. They're paying $100,000 for a white canvas. For real. It's insane. So It's almost like the artists are pranking the consumer. Yeah, and that all started with like Andy Warhol. You can go back with like Duchamp, like Toilet and Gallery. But what's really annoying about it to me is like there's a craft that's overlooked. Because you can you can say that they're saying something about art, great, but they're they're literally what I hate about it is they're jumping. It's like it's like a guy, it's the equivalent of a guy in comedy who gets a sitcom. And never was a stand-up comedian. Yes. And sells out like Michael Richards or something like that and doesn't know the craft. So now he's trying to be funny outside of his scripted 100 writers on his TV show telling him how to be funny. It's the equivalent to me. It's like it's you're a hack. You're a hack. I mean that's what it is. Same thing with directors. There's a lot of directors out there who who didn't sharpen their teeth and learn the craft. But they've got some good opportunities. Maybe they went to film school or maybe they had – this da, da, da. I see. I don't care about accolades. I'm like a cowboy Cerrone in fighting. I'm ready to fight you tomorrow. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm ready to go. Let's go. This is what I do for a living. You know, I'm not doing it for accolades. Yeah, I, I respect that about comedy and and all those. Hell things. yeah, dude! Yeah. Fucking passion. Hell yeah! <laughs> exactly. I just wanted you to kind of uh, mention what you're working on now, and then we're gonna move to some hypotheticals regarding money. So the project that you're working on now with the chef. Yeah, I actually can't talk about all of oh, it. Oh, you can't. Okay. Yeah, he, me, and him have a long-standing relationship. He's He's a basically believed in me before anybody did, and he's incredible. But this, I guess you know? we can we can talk about. And let me know if this is if this is off limits or whatever. But just the same fusion that you had with the project with Derek Hess, being a huge fan of art, mm-hmm. 
um, both having, you know, struggling with mental disorders. Same with your love for cooking yeah. and being a chef. Now you're kind of doing it again in a different form. Totally. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. And, and also just, he's, he's, uh, he's old school. He's a guy that, you know, sh- shakes your hand and it's, I, those people I gravitate towards and, and you're right. The passion is the same. I try to do that with everything. Like I'm doing a vinyl record documentary right now for a company called got a groove records and they're out of Cleveland. And it's two things I'm passionate about manufacturing coming back to America, especially a place like Cleveland where it fell out and, sustaining jobs and income and you know that's important to me because i'm from the rust belt and then they're making vinyl records and they're music lovers and they make amazing one-of-a-kind pieces of art out of these records i mean it's incredible so i did a 10-minute commission on that uh the winemakers that's literally tomorrow morning you know this won't be out by then but tomorrow morning all the press is going out for that so it'll be out there um that's that i'm passionate about that too i I think it's really interesting um i'm kind of weird in the sense of like I really just get fired up about people doing something that they're passionate about. And it's kind of a privilege when you get to be a director because you get to go to these people who are masters of what they do, especially if you're doing documentary or something. Right. And I go there and I go, I'm, I'm get to soak up information like a sponge. I may not know. You do a lot of learning. Yeah. I may not know anything about the same with podcasts. I'd imagine too. It's like, I may not know anything about wine, but I go in there and I, and I do know a little bit about wine, but I go in there and I go, what makes, why are you using terracotta amphora and what's, what is the reason? Like, well, this is like the first way the wine was made in Syrah, you know, Syria, like Syrah that actually comes from Syria, which was Assyria. And they buried these things in the ground. I was like, I didn't know that. So this is clay pots. They buried in the ground. So it was cold inside the deserts because it was 110 degrees. But if you're in the sand, it's insulated, it's mm-hmm. cold. That's why wines are kept at like 65 degrees. And then the Romans came in there and stole that shit from them and planted it all over the world when they invaded it. You know, like the the history of it. It's cool. Like I get to sit there and learn. So whether or not I'm passionate about it or not sometimes isn't that important. It's just you have to be want to learn about it. And that genuineness of wanting to learn is what I think makes my stuff cool and special is because at least in documentaries, you get to you're learning with me. And it's not like a PBS learning. It's like an introspective, you know, spiritual openness to the process. And I see them for who they are, not for what they are. What's your biggest regret with money? <laughs> um, uh, not saving more of it. <laughs> I had a really good job. But I, did you have, yeah, so like that's, you, know. you can do that. And like maybe your biggest regret, did you have like one single moment where you've lost a lot of money at one point? Or was it just like a regret that you had? Well, I've actually never been compulsive with money. Um, I've worked since I, like I said, since I was fourteen. So I never like, I never like was crazy. I'm gonna buy. Well, I will say this: when I was in high school, I was making bank. I was working uh, at a uh, elementary school after hours, and I was pulling like union shit. Twelve dollars an hour as a kid in high school who lives with his parents. You know how much money I had. Right, it's insane. I was taking home like five grand a week. You know, as a kid in Ohio, it was crazy. I was making good money. Like five grand? Yeah. Like I was working overtime. I was going after oh, school. Wow. I was like working time and a half. I was like, uh, I, I'm, I've always been a workaholic, right? Yeah. But what's crazy is, uh, I, I was at the time I was I was into paintball and I was sponsored for paintball. 
But there was, you know, that shit was so expensive. Like my gun was twelve hundred dollars. You can buy a fucking assault rifle for cheaper than that, <laughs> you know. And it's like I was like certified in electro pneumatics, so I know how to work on them. So I'd like buy these circuit boards and trick them out. I was like nerding out over these guns, and I was just so into it. And I would buy all the best gear, the best masks, the best you know nitro- nitrogen tanks or like compressed air tanks, and like I was super into it. And I blew like all of that money that I had made for the past two years in one summer just playing paintball. Oh my god! So that was pretty fucking stupid. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I had fun, yeah. so I don't really regret it. It's yeah. a weird thing. Like I'm a compulsive person. Like like right now, it, you know, if it comes between, obviously I'm always going to pay my bills. But if it comes between me going out and hanging out with friends and whatever, and me like buying groceries and cooking asabuco. I'm going to do that. I, I have weird priorities, money. Um, I guess the biggest regret is not saving it when I quit the job, though. Yeah. I, I had like, I was making like 70 grand a year at a pretty cushy agency job. This was in Chicago? Yeah. And I, I lived under my means and I, I'd saved some money, but I, I cashed out my 401k and I, I had like, you know, twenty thirty thousand dollars $30,000 saved up and to pursue this dream. And, uh, I worked really hard to try to get stuff happening, but in the first like eight months, it goes quick, man. The first eight months, I just didn't have any work, and so I was just blowing through money. So I would have been, it would have been way easier on me if I had saved a lot more money. Like if I had saved enough money for a year of my life, I would have been fine. So if there's anybody thinking about quitting their job and going into freelance, anything, make sure you have your living costs covered for a year. That's my best advice to you because that's. That would change your life. I took a lot of jobs in the beginning. I did, I don't associate myself with them, but just to pay the rent. And it, the the trick is with directing is that you need to create perception of of you know you obviously need to have the experience and do the jobs, but you want to be moving always towards your long term goal of what you want to be making, not just do a film and then do a bunch of commercial commissions on the side that you don't like. I'm at a point now where I'm doing and picking the jobs that I'm passionate about and paying the bills on it. But you could get there a lot quicker if you don't give a a crap. Like people who are rich, who have rich parents and they can fall back on it, that's some advantage they have over you. So that's the way I looked at it. I mean, granted, they they may not know exactly where they want to be, but it helps, you know, to have that to fall back on. So if you had a million dollars in your bank account tomorrow, showed up immediately. How do you think your day-to-day life would change? A million dollars in L.A. is not even going to get me a, a condo. <laughs> I, well, first and foremost, what I would do is I would invest in my next project. So that would take a lot of the financial weight off of me. I wouldn't change my quality of life here. I would just stay. Yeah. I would live this way until I could spin that money into bigger money. Because, the, like I said, I'm a die-on-a-sword type person. So, But, yeah, my, my day-to-day life would – I mean, there would be a lot more better quality ingredients, better booze. Yep. You know, I'd go out a little bit more for dinner and things, but other than that, I wouldn't really change much. On the on the broader scope, kind of socioeconomically with America and the world abroad right now, mm-hmm. um, economic disparity is a huge topic. Yeah. Do you are you paying attention at all to the political debates or anything like that? I try not to, but I try not to as well. Yeah. But do you do you have um, an amateur opinion of how you think that gap? I mean, you mentioned manufacturing coming back into America. Do you have any other, not necessarily advice, but political philosophy that could help out America economically? Yeah, well, first and foremost is absolutely stop giving the jobs to everybody else. I don't have a political strong, like, one way or the other view on anything. I'm pretty much in the middle on a lot of things. But one thing I think 
that if you look at all the times in history that America was great, we were making things and we were employing people. Even when we were at war, we, the, the women were working in the factories and we were making these things. And then like, you know, look at the cars, the amazing cars that America made in the twenties and thirties up until the fifties and sixties. And then when all the Coke happened in the eighties, the car started to suck. And then, but then all the outsourcing also happened at that time. So I think that's number one financially is I think if you asked most Americans, especially in the middle of America or the far East coast, they would pay $10 more to have something built here hand like that would last a lot longer Mm -hmm. the other thing is planned obsolescence right you know that needs to change if you look at like germany or like germany got bombed to shit after world war ii but that place has all their power lines buried they epoxy and seal their roads the autobahn they can't tear up the autobahn at like every five years are you insane so there's they, they just build things better and they last longer And, you know, I guess the other, like politically though, I would say, you know, take, take the candidates out of it right now, whoever's in there, you know, they need to figure out that, that, uh, situation with the disparity, because I believe within our lifetime, if things continue the way they, they will, there'll be some scary shit happening in this country. Mm -hmm. There'll be some, there's a lot of people who my dad and whatever, like the fact that he could graduate high school, he's 18, he could work his ass off, still worked hard. But he could just work a job, and he could buy a house at 36. How many people you know our age who can do that? It's just not a reality. It, bartenders, he knew guys who were bartenders, and they had a house. Yeah, absolutely. If you're going to be a bartender now, you got to work at four bars just to pay your rent. Yeah, so well, especially here too. Yeah, but I mean even in like Ohio, like you, you know, you maybe have to work a couple jobs, a couple different shifts just to be able to pay for a mortgage on a house. That's not right. If you're working 40 hours a week for anybody, you should be able to have a livable, a quality of life, mm-hmm. you know? And that's the same thing talking about the, our generation coming out of college and serious debt where that was that money was going toward a mortgage for a house in the previous generation. Now we can't even consider that because we're paying off this mortgage size loan for an education that may or may not have been important to our careers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't – I think there's going to be some serious change and it's – Sadly, I don't think to be political, I don't think anybody who's president ever has any control of anything. I think it's 100% the system is is corrupted. I mm-hmm. don't think that there's any solution other than changing the system. You know, I don't think that even if you got a Bernie Sanders type character in there that he would do anything. Cuz really it's the very president difficult. The president is the cheerleader for Team America. The House and the Senate run the show and the people behind the scenes of that actually run the show. And I don't, you know, and I'm not conspiracy theory in that way. I mean, logistically, I mean, they, there is, when money is involved, it changes things, you know? And it always is involved. And it always is. So, you know, I think we should go back to the, the Roman, two things, education and, and, um, and politics. I think we should go back to the Greek and Roman era, meaning what does democracy come from, right? I mean, if you guys want some good reading material on this, read the Euphro. It's um, Plato's firsthand account of Socrates' plight against the Catholic Church for piety. It's an amazing book. It teaches you a lot about truth and justice and those sort of things. I'm into philosophy. so. But what's great is about that time was all of the elected representatives were community members that would change like seasonally. So literally you would be – there wasn't like a you know unlimited term for Congress or Senate or state or whatever you want to say. 
they would have to leave after every year. It would be a different person. So the people were the, the government were the people, mm-hmm. right? Granted, that ended pretty bad for him because of Caesar and everything. <laughs> yeah. But um, but that's a better system than what we have in place, in my opinion. Secondly, with education, we need to go back to an apprenticeship program because if you look at me, I'm a perfect example of that. I had no other good skills other than art, but somebody recognized that in me and mentored me and cultivated me and allowed me the infrastructure to become successful. The problem is a lot of kids, majority of kids who don't have, who end up becoming doctors and lawyers, whatever, they're not the ones who want to be doctors or lawyers or whatever. They're forced into it because the system makes cookie cutter people. If you're in, if you're in high school, I think up until high school through middle school, it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, all the basic things that you need. When you're in high school, it should be like the old apprenticeship programs in medieval times. You want to be a blacksmith? Okay, we'll try out being a blacksmith for a week. Here's a guy who knows how to do a blacksmith. Oh, you want to be a mathematician or a doctor or a chemist or whatever. There's a place for that everywhere. If we started to shift the system that way, what would happen is kids would come out of out of high school and they'd have a clear idea of what they wanted to do with their life. So then they can go to higher education with purpose and intent and not fuck off for four years. I mean, that's one thing I've always been lucky with is I always knew I wanted to do something in the arts is how many people, do you know, they went to a, a, you know, a four year school and didn't have the opportunity to do what they want to do because they just had chase their caught in momentum. Oh, absolutely. You I know? mean, they kind of, they grind that into your mind at age five, that college is everything and they need to go or else you won't be anything without it. And mm-hmm. it's it's so like I remember even my college experience. We I was an English education major, and we didn't even get into the classroom until our second semester of our junior year. So it's like you can think about all the theory of education you want until you get in front of a classroom. It, all that shit goes out the window. Yeah, you know when you're in front of thirty people that are hormonally charged that are all individually different. You know, yeah. it's, it's crazy. And then like the whole idea of like. Just, you know, that you're going to figure it out by the time you're 19. Right. I'm not saying you should be lazy and take a vacation in Europe and do your thing. But, like, you should – I don't think there should be so much pressure on you right when you're a young adult. Like, who knows anything about life when they're 18, when they're 19? You have no idea. Especially first time living away from home. Yep. Like, all all of the the factors combined just, like, to not really make a a quality – experience in education for the higher education and the just the sheer amount of money that it costs anybody to go to school is criminal every person especially if you work for ourselves like Even, you pay 30 percent of your income into yeah. taxes it's crazy you yeah. don't get a free school and it may not be the best school but there should be some schools that are free i mean harvard shouldn't be free right uh case western law should be free um but you know state schools cleveland state university that should be free to anybody who goes in that area uh you know usc university of southern california that's shouldn't be a private it should be southern california and if you live in southern california and you pay california taxes mm-hmm. in my opinion and you know i don't oh, think I that's agree. socialist i think it's investing in the future of your country and i also think like with the tax thing there should be you should be able to allocate where your taxes are specifically going as opposed to just throwing in a federal and state tax and be like just go for it do whatever yeah, you want with it because yeah. You should be able to spend your money the way that you want to. I mean, that's your money. You're spending it on. Yeah. It's the only transaction we have that we don't have a receipt for, which is crazy. You know, like you pay, you know, you should be able, like you said, like voting online or something. Like you should be able to just check a box and say, I want this to go to schools. Or exactly. Whatever. And and that should be allocated. I don't know. Like to take it back to my grandfather, as you say, the reason that uh, the reason that the government hated the mob is because they always were pushing it on their territory. Because all, if you look at what La Cosa Nostra is, or any of those organized crime, the Yakuza, or any of that stuff, they all rose out of like 
when the government didn't represent the people and they had to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. So those in the beginning, idealistically, it's a beautiful thing. Just like America was a beautiful thing when it was founded. But over time, people screw it up. And that doesn't mean the system's flawed. It's just some people suck. Yeah. <laughs> and it just gets corrupted. You just got to have safeguards in place to, to change that. You got a website people can check out? NickCavalier.com is my portfolio website. And then um, you can go to ForcedPerspectiveFilm.com for the film. So You want to have some pasta? Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, dude. Yeah, all right. Well, there you have it. That was a great interview with Nick Cavalier. Um, he talked about learning, you know, with his work and his documentary filmmaking, and I think we learned a lot from Nick listening to that interview. Please check out his his film Force Perspective. He showed me a little bit of it on some of the raw clips. Um, it actually can be downloaded on Vimeo on demand, and then also it will be released on iTunes soon. Also, keep an eye out for his um, documentary on the Sonoma Wines. And also, he's got some cool projects coming up, potentially, with some major networks. So keep an eye out for that guy. Check him out on nickcavalier.com. And remember that money is always meant to be spent.